Well, it's good to be with you this, uh, this morning as we worship the Lord together, and we're at that time where we pick up our Bibles and turn to uh, His Holy Word and uh, study together. I'm very excited to pick up with part two of Identifying with Christ. We are in Hebrews chapter 13, and we're looking at verses uh, 13 to 14 this morning, a continuation of, uh, of that section, uh, starting at verse 10. Uh, as you're turning there, um, I want to say that we spoke quite a bit uh, last time about eating. <laughs> and uh, if that got your stomach juices flowing, I'm sorry. Uh, it wasn't my intention to do that. Um, actually, it was my intention to get your brain firing its dopamine and endorphins that uh, make you mentally hungry for Christ. And for all that he is and does and has promised that he will accomplish for us, for his end time plan, for his kingdom, for eternal life that we have now and will have in full later. You see, people are controlled by what they hunger for, right? You know that. You can put food off. Excuse me. You can put food off for only so long before... Your hunger commands you. We desire and submit to Christ, of course. That is what the writer of the Hebrews wanted for his audience, and that's what the Holy Spirit wants for us today through this passage as we live in this godless period of the end times. We need to be devoted to Christ, desiring him only. Well, now in our last study then, we convey, uh, covered verses 10 to 12, and we answered the question, what does it mean for us to partake of our altar, who is Christ, to eat of this sacrifice that is every bit a sweet savor offering for us as it is our sin offering? We looked at the obvious connection, if you remember, to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There, Paul explains that that we partake together of, of the elements of the, of the uh, bread and wine, symbols of the body and blood of Christ, we thereby identify with Christ. Now, the Lord's Supper was really only an, an illustration last Sunday of the kind of identifying that, that should also take place outside of the communion table. That is to say... The writer here wants his audience constantly feeding on Christ, constantly identifying with him in all aspects of their lives. This is even outside of communion, outside of the worship service, between the Sundays. This is not a new idea to us by any means. We looked at John 6, if you remember, where Jesus couches his call to sinners to embrace him to give their loyalty to him in terms of eating him. Eating Christ is a figure for a life that is loyal and devoted to Christ, a life of surrender, of yielding to him, of identifying with him, with his will, his word, his way, his power, his mind, his purposes in every way possible. It gives new meaning to the old adage, you are what you eat, I suppose. What's left for us to consider in this passage, then, is is the more practical side of identifying with Christ. 
what that actually looks like in real life, in your life, and in mine, we find that laid out for us in verses 13 and 14, it is the writer's call to action on the basis of the truth of verses 10 to 12. That's how it relates. So, verses 13 and 14, the writer says, So let us go outside to the camp, bearing his reproach, for there we do not have a last for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Verses 13 and 14. Now I'd like to bring my exposition to you from these two verses in four simple truths, just four simple truths. I think they're easy to remember. The first one is this: separate from the world. Or be separate from the world. Either way. Simple truth is to be separate from the world. Verse 13 begins, let us go out to him outside the camp. Now, what could this possibly mean for the Jewish Christians receiving this exhortation? What a strange thing to say. Jewish Christians then might still have bristled at such an idea, just out of reflex, since they all grew up believing that there is nothing but bad news outside the camp. It was another one of those phrases like, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that the would-be followers of Jesus found very offensive and revolting. Anyone steeped in the Old Testament traditions knew that eating blood was a direct violation of the law, and so was leaving the camp. Now, you know from your Old Testament history that God set up a camp, a camp for the 12 tribes of Israel, and he arranged them in a particular formation around the tabernacle, and established boundaries for the camp. So they knew where the camp ended and the rest of the pagan world began. Outside the camp, anything outside the camp, was considered unholy, unclean, and not fit to associate with. If anyone had gone outside the camp, that person instantly was unclean and had to be practice certain ceremonial purification rites in order to be made clean again. This is also where many of the partial sacrifices, those that were not wholly burned up on the altar, wound up. They were discarded there and burned up outside the camp. Outside the camp represented godlessness, where paganism reigned supreme, not a a sacred place for communal worship or sacrifice. By sharp contrast... The Israelite camp represented holiness. It was where God dwelt with his people, where the covenants were given, where worship and praise took place, true worship. It was the place of sacrifice and renewal, of redemption and hope. It characterized the biblical way of thinking and acting. By the way, this camp versus the outside of the camp or the world mentally um, and physically, that is to say, how we think about the camp and and where we are in relationship to it, Um, the need to remain in the camp and separate from the world was still very much alive in the first century. That whole idea of camp versus outside the camp. 
that we find in the Old Testament, very much alive in the first century. In fact, if any Jew then traveling outside the Holy City through Gentile regions, just before re-entering the Holy City again, would have to shake the dust or the dirt, the, the Gentile dirt from Gentile regions off the soles of their feet so as not to bring it in and contaminate the Holy Land, much in the same way that we wipe the dirt from our shoes on a doormat before we enter our house so that we won't bring it into the house and contaminate the house. Now, this literal physical act of shaking the dust off one's feet later became a gesture for separation. It had the same idea as our modern phrase, oh, I wash my hands of the whole thing. It was a symbolic way in the first century to show that one had done all that he possibly could do in a particular situation and now has relinquished all responsibility from it. In Mark 6, for example, Jesus, remember, sent out his disciples in an evangelistic mission with these instructions, verse 11. And if, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Paul and Barnabas did the same thing in Iconium. When the Jews rejected them very violently, Acts 13, it says they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. Essentially, they were saying this, if you don't want our gospel, then you're on your own. We've, we have nothing more to do with you. So with this idea of camp versus outside the camp, the writer of Hebrews takes his cue from Jesus, uses shock value with, the same old, with some Old Testament imagery to drive home New Covenant truth to his audience. His exhortation to them is, go outside the camp. And that was an effective way for him to call them to separate themselves, to disassociate themselves from Judaism and in particular from that small sect of Judaism established by the Essenes that they found so attractive and useful. I want to be very specific here. Camp, by the first century, or by the time of the first century, was not referring so much to a geographical location as in the time of the Old Testament where you had the camp with the boundaries and the configuration of the tribes. Rather, it was more a belief system and that is Judaism. While, it, is, while it, it, it still was inseparably bound, of course, to temples and altars, and on the Day of the Atonement, specifically to the temple in Jerusalem, Jews lived and worshipped Yahweh everywhere in the empire. So it was a belief system that the writer had in mind when he referred to camp and specifically the religion of Judaism that the writer calls them to come out of, the camp of Judaism, in verse 13. And I think you understand that well enough since we use the word the same way today in our normal conversation. We talk about a particular movement, a, a doctrinal position, a political view, a philosophical position by calling it a camp. We don't mean by that a geographical location so much. That's the, the liberal camp, we say, the conservative camp. 
It's a way of referring collectively to a particular worldview and its proponents, whether their headquarters are in Washington or in Dubai. It's the system of belief that we're talking about. So the writer to the Hebrews tells his Jewish Christian audience that they no longer have a part with Judaism in any form. No longer are you associated with this camp over here. They, they came out of it when they were converted to Christ. They turned from the futile attempts of this particular religion, which is now obsolete, to find favor with God, and they embraced the work of Christ alone. But sadly, they sought refuge in it again as the persecution they endured for their newfound faith heated up and they became comfortable with its tenets once more. In fact, they started finding ways to integrate it with Christianity so that they could be both at the same time, enjoy a persecution-free life, being associated with Judaism, while still calling themselves Christians. Now, just in case any of you forgot, Christianity is not a belief system that is compatible with any other system of thought or ideology or philosophy of life or worldview. This is what makes the faith so offensive. It claims that the only way to God is through Christ, and that's its exclusive claim. There have always been only two counsels on life since the fall. We talked about it in our Sunday school hour. We have God's counsel on the one hand and Satan's counsel on the other. That means that you have the Bible alone on one side, and on the other side you have other belief systems under the category of satanic counsel. What we're seeing in American Christianity now is an attempt by well-known Christian personalities and churches to want to harmonize the Bible with the other, with secular thinking, whether it's psychological tenets, religious dogma, or secular positions popularized by public conscience, such as critical race theory and intersectionality. The writer's admonition to his audience here to come out of the camp was for them to separate from Judaism, plain and simple. For us today, it means a number of worldviews, philosophies, even religions, but they all fit, of course, under what we know as the world system. It's basically satanic counsel. In this sense, camp, verse 13, really has the fuller idea of anything that vies for our loyalty against Christ. And it comes into the church wearing the clothes of biblical truth. Paul calls, calls uh, or assigns it rather, to vain philosophies, the traditions of men, worldly fables, destructive heresies, every lofty thing that is raised up against the word of God. That is what camp means in verse 13 for us. The world system. Satanic counsel. And we are to separate ourselves from that. That's the first truth. Here's the second. Separate yourself unto Christ. Separate yourself unto Christ. First truth, first truth separate yourself from satanic counsel, from the world system, 
but also separate yourself unto Christ. The writer's call to his fellow Jewish Christians is not only to come out of the camp of Judaism, it's more than that. It's to go to Christ. Look at verse 13 again. It begins with, so, the Greek word means therefore, according to, and it connects this admonition with what he said in verses 10 to 12. Here is the argument. Because Jesus suffered outside the gate, where he also sanctified a people, the writer now calls them to identify with Jesus apart from Judaism. He says, let us go out to him who is outside the camp. Leave the camp, go to Christ. Make sure that you understand what's being contrasted here. It's very important not to miss this. I want to, be, I want to make sure we're, we're clear here. We're on the same page. It's the world system in Christ, or satanic counsel in Christ. Those are the two things that are being contrasted here. The idea of camp has developed from a literal Old Testament camp that represents God's holiness to the broader idea of Judaism in the first century. And now, because it's contrast, contrasted here with Christ, its fullest meaning is really, as I say, satanic counsel. It manifests itself in the religious sect of the Essenes for the first century Jewish Christians, but it manifests itself for us in any system of belief that's not biblical Christianity. And because that's true, we have a very interesting reversal going on here. I wonder if you've noticed this. Whereas before in the Old Covenant, the camp represented God's holiness and outside the camp was Satan's domain, in verse 13, the camp now represents satanic counsel and belief systems and the world system, and Christ now stands outside of it which is where God's holiness and righteousness are. It has to be this way, you see, for at least two reasons. Verse 12 already told us that Jesus suffered outside the gate, which means that he has no part with Judaism. The second reason is that verse 13 specifically, specifically calls us to go to him. It's important, by the way, to see that Jesus is contrasted with the camp, and the camp is now the world. Some here might wonder, isn't outside the camp still the world? Well, in a geographical sense only. By that I mean you have Judaism in, in its temple, in its altars, represented by its, priestly, uh, its priesthood, and then you have the world outside of that, the rest of the, the world. But Jesus is the object of our identification. Do you see that? It's not the outside camp area that we're identifying with, right? It says, go out to him who happens to be outside the camp. To suggest that Jesus aligns himself with the world when he separates himself from the camp of Judaism, well, that's ridiculous. Jesus is aligned with heaven. And in order to identify with Jesus, the first century Jewish Christians had to stand apart from Judaism in any form. And for us to identify with Jesus, we have to stand apart from any, any system of belief, whether it's Judaism or one of a thousand of the worldviews and belief systems out there. 
particular emphasis that we want to make this morning is on how exactly do we show our identification with Christ alone? How do we do that? What does standing apart from the world system and standing with Christ look like? How do we show that? How do we show that we have separated from the world and that we side with Christ in our lives? Well, according to the text, it means, first of all, that we identify with Jesus' teaching in concrete, tangible, measurable expressions of devotion. What do I mean by that? It's what James meant when he said that we should be doers of the word, not hearers only. Now, we've shown that the full idea of camp refers to satanic doctrine in many forms, essentially the world system and not a geographical area with borders, right? We've shown that. But that doesn't mean that people don't express and emphasize their beliefs in their behavior, right? They do. The Jewish faith that the writer calls his audience to separate from, well, they were tied to a priesthood. They were tied to a sacrificial system, even a temple and an altar. Those are physical, tangible expressions of their belief system. Today, Muslims go to, pr- go to a prayer room. They pray three times a day. And then on Ramadan, the holiest day of their year, they make a pilgrimage to Mecca. There's a lot of physical activity going on. A lot of geographical lo- locations being, being visited. Roman Catholics go to Mass every week. They worship an altar where there is a sacrifice. To a con- they go to a confessional booth to confess their sins in private, to a real person called a priest in order to receive from him absolution. Lots of physical activity, lots of different places, designated, assigned places. We cannot separate, you see, doctrine from lifestyle. We cannot do that because it is our doctrine that determines our lifestyle. Religious and philosophical doctrines are meant to direct behavior, just as much as they are meant to direct our thinking. For example, to show that we align with a particular person's ideology, we might physically stand next to him, with that person, engage with him in certain activities, share his stance, share his joys and his sorrows. When a person stands, for example, with a defendant before a court of law, he's supporting and identifying with that defendant. People of a particular political party identify with their party's goals and choice of candidate for office through what's called electioneering. They congregate outside of the designated voting areas. They hold up signs with their party's slogans. They pass out buttons. Belief systems are what order people's lives. They do what they do because of what they believe, you see? Now, here's proof of what I'm saying. Church in Hebrews had drifted from orthodoxy, and they started embracing error. This Judaism uh, from a sect, a particular brand of Judaism from the sect of the Essenes. And the lack of biblical truth, together with the addition of error, had a huge impact on their lives, didn't it? They They no longer endured persecution. They shied away from it by practicing Judaism. 
<clears throat> Let's understand then that the call to us to separate from satanic, humanistic, pagan doctrines that come in many forms is very important. It's clear. It's here. And those particular forms of secular satanic doctrine that happen to infiltrate the church, we need to recognize and we need to expose it. There were many that infiltrated the church at Colossae. Some were labeled philosophy, others spiritism, angel worship, and perhaps the most pronounced one was legalism, which Paul said was in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, teaching not to handle or taste or touch certain items and so on. He told the Colossians in no uncertain terms this, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. No value. As for those in the book of Hebrews, then, they were enslaving themselves once again to the old covenant. Let me say that Whichever counterfeit piece of truth happens to catch you off guard, all of them are really a satanic ideology that has become the world system. The writer's call to his audience and to churches today is clear. Reverse this process in your life and start identifying with Christ, not only in your thinking, but in your practice. And Jesus certainly called for this as well. He said, pray in my name. Confess me before men. Take up your cross and follow me. Bless those who persecute you in my, uh, 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 for my sake. Show love to your enemy. And the epistle certainly insisted on identifying with Christ in this very practical way as well. Imitate Christ. Put on Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Be Christ-like. This is behavior. This is thinking and behavior. Experience the power of his resurrection. So we identify with the Lord in concrete, tangible, measurable expressions of devotion. But that's not all. We identify with the Lord in these concrete, tangible, measurable, measurable expressions of devotion Secondly, at all costs, at all costs. The writer calls us to go to Christ outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Do you see that? Don't be slow or shy to identify with our Lord, even at the point of persecution or embarrassment or being ignored and marginalized, even harmed. First century Jews, Jewish Christians were keenly aware of this, which is why they started drifting in the first place. Identifying with Christ means embracing all that Christ is and all that comes with his reputation, especially persecution. Jesus told his disciples that a slave is not above his master, which means that a slave should not expect to be treated any better than his master. If the world persecuted him, the world will persecute his followers just the same. His exact words on this are these. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me 
before it hated you. He even cautioned would-be followers, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Look at you either surrender your life to me, Jesus says, and never look back, or don't bother coming at all. And that's not something you hear very often in evangelistic events, is it? He said, count the cost, right? He said, count the cost right at the beginning. Let me just digress here for a moment. This is one of my pet peeves, so I I cannot let it escape without giving it just a, a little attention. There is this thinking in American Christianity that says never talk about the cost of following Christ in your evangelism because, they argue, that has to do with discipleship and not salvation. And that if you bring it up, you are guilty of preaching a works gospel. And this is such a warped, injurious teaching. Not to mention just plain wrong. Telling people a kind of life that they can expect from 100% devotion to Christ is not suggesting that they work for their salvation. It simply alerts them to what repentance really looks like. Those who like to omit this part of the gospel really do so because they want to make sure that they can win people over as if they had any part to play in the salvation of another. Now who's guilty of work salvation? What do you think that they are winning them over to? I don't know. Those who admit any omit any reference to the love and devotion and surrender of one's heart and faculties to Christ are like marketing professionals that companies hire to drum up good business. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Mrs. Borelli and I were looking for responsible, I'm sorry, reasonably priced hotels for a week in Florida to spend with our kids who live there now. And just to change up the pace a bit. Now, this trip in Florida is somewhat of a last-minute last uh, venture, and with, and, and, and with it being at the start of the tourist season, I thought for sure that we would not find a place to stay that we could afford. And as I was searching for a hotel, I was pleasantly surprised that there were actually a fair amount that were not highly priced at all. So I rang up my sister who is a veteran traveler in the States, and I asked her where she stays in Florida. And as we talked, she warned me of the hidden fees in Florida hotels. That's right, hidden fees. I was shocked to learn this. You might think you're paying $90 a night, but you learn only after your stay, of course, when you get the bill, that you owe much more. There's the daily... A $20 parking lot fee for just using their parking lot, even if you Uber all over the place, makes no difference. $15 beach entrance fee, $10 fee to include a continental breakfast. You know the free continental breakfast? The $10 fee for basic amenities, which doesn't include Wi-Fi. That's an extra $5 per day, and five more for each one that you add. Small kitchenette, handicapped shower, an iron. 
What's included in the basic amenities, you might wonder? A toilet. So you might think $90 a night was great until it turns out to be an easy $150. Now, Floridians have every right to charge what they want for their hotels, but it would be nice if they told you up front what you'll be paying and, and what you'll be getting. Those who leave out important information in the gospel context are really setting their so-called converts up for a very big surprise. No wonder many limp along in the faith, if not fall away altogether. They haven't trusted in the right gospel. And by the way, association with the reproach of Christ, which is an integral part of identifying with him, is not a message just for compromised believers. We know that part of the audience of the book of Hebrews was unsaved, who had been in the church long enough to be actually on the verge of trusting Christ. Obviously, the writer was not shy to let them know the cost of this precious faith. Actually, we get the impression that he wants us to welcome reproach when it comes, if we are believers, true believers in Christ, actually almost wearing it as a badge of honor even. Peter and John rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name. Do you remember when they left the Sanhedrin bloody and beaten? Paul declared that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it was the very power of God unto salvation. He even told the Colossians, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, of course, there's nothing that Christ ever lacked in his ministry. The idea here is that is that the ongoing suffering that Christ would have endured had he lived in his body, the church, the body of Christ, now receives in his place. This persecution comes as a result, then, of identifying with him. Third, very simple truth. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. You separate from the world system, you separate unto Christ... There's no middle ground. What does it mean to come out of the world? Obviously, it doesn't mean that we, we can somehow remove ourselves from it, right? We shouldn't think that. Someday Jesus will take us out of the world and literally bring us to heaven. But until then, we're, we're not to be associated with the world system, this satanic council that is manifest in a variety of different philosophies and so on. We don't identify with any of its anti-biblical positions or adopt any worldly thinking and ideology. James tells us that friendship with the world is hostility to God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James means that when we have a longing for the things of the world, our affections are at that point misplaced and we betray our true loyalties. We are in this world physically, yes. But as the familiar quip goes, we are not of the world. Now, Jesus captured this idea in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He said of his true disciples in verse 14, the world has hated them because they are not of the world 
even as I am not of the world. And then his specific prayer for them in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We cannot help but be in the world, beloved. But we can help being associated with the world's system. The world is where God has placed us right now. It's our mission field, but it's not our home. It's not our hope. It's not our heaven. And until Jesus takes us out of it, we must be careful not to become worldly, but rather stay salty and light. For that, we need to disassociate ourselves from the world system, the satanic thinking that manifests itself in so many ways, and remain true to our Lord and to his word in practice. So what have we said so far? Number one, separate from the world. Number two, separate unto Christ. Number three, there's no middle ground. It's either one or the other. And number four, there is nothing to lose and everything to gain. Now I'm talking to Christians here. Those of us who know Christ ought to know that there is nothing in this world to, to gain, uh, to lose. Nothing worth losing. And everything waiting for us worth gaining. This is the reason in verse 14 for the writer's call in verse 13. Admittedly, the command is, I think, more difficult than it sounds. Come out and be separate. And that's because the difference between choosing Christ over the world system or any other any form of it, family, friends, our own strong idolatrous desires for that matter, involves siding with reproach. That's what makes this different, difficult. Siding with reproach. On the one hand, there is no better place for a true believer to be than in the will of God, living a life of blessed obedience to his truth, enjoying deeply what it means to be a slave of Christ and enduring persecution for his name's sake. On the other hand, there is the world, the flesh and the devil, that we encounter. And being housed in the flesh with all its lust doesn't make it any easier. Confident and sterling walk of faith is certainly attainable, but Jesus never said that it would be easy. So the writer appends verse 14, which we might think of as sort of an abbreviated pep talk. He says, for we do not have a lasting city here, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's the reason why we should separate. The verse provides us with two outstanding reasons why we, should, why we should go out to Christ and to his teaching and away from the world system where satanic ideology flourishes. The first is that the world system has nothing to offer us by anti-biblical think, but anti-biblical thinking that leads to anti-biblical behavior. So there's nothing lost here when we separate from the world. Nothing to lose at all. There are these occasional descriptions of the world system of this camp in the New Testament that every Christian and, and unbelievers to whom we give the gospel should take note. The world system that we're to separate from, that offers us absolutely nothing. It is the domain of Satan. It's where the precious gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. 
where the God of this world blinds their minds. Blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When anyone hears the word, uh, the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, here in this camp, the evil one comes and snatches away what might have been sown in the heart. In addition, the worldly system definitely has a shelf life. It may present itself with the idea that, it is, that it's guaranteed for life, but that really is false advertising. Life extends beyond the grave where every, everyone must answer to a holy God. Everything is temporal. Everything is fleeting. There is nothing lasting that we may belong to here, nothing that we can put our hope in, no eternal aspect to this present life. Now comes the second reason from the verse, and that is that we are seeking a city that is to come. We are seeking a city that is to come because uh, it offers us an abundance. An abundance, right? Where we expect the writer to say this, don't we? After all, it's the overarching theme of the entire book, and its place here is very appropriate. We have a camp to which we belong, a spiritual, tangible, doctrinal, eternal camp, a city that is coming. It's the kingdom of God, the camp of God, his domain, the domain of the righteous. It's every believer's legal residence. We have our own dwelling places there that Jesus is preparing for us for when he comes to bring us back to where he is. We have an, a heavenly address, and we know the way there. We have everything, everything to gain. That's the second reason. Now, I want you to notice a small detail in this verse, small but important. The writer says that we are seeking a city, right? I'm sure that's what it says in your verse. The writer says we seek a city that is coming. Now, he doesn't just say that we have a city in heaven that will get here someday, but that we are seeking one. And certainly, it means that we are looking for its arrival, we are anticipating its coming. No question about that. But there's, there's even more than this. To be waiting for something can mean that we are passive about it. But there's no hint here at all of being passive in the word seek. It's true that we can do nothing to hasten the coming of the kingdom. But neither the writer nor the rest of the New Testament encourages us to sit by idly and wait until it comes. There's nothing passive about our anticipation of the kingdom. The verb the writer uses translates seek, translated seek, incorporates both ideas of looking for something and longing for something. How do you anticipate someone you just cannot wait to see? There are right ways and wrong ways to anticipate an outcome regardless if the outcome is positive or negative. You can, for example, let the dread of an outcome strike paralyzing fear into you and become lazy and good for nothing, much like the unworthy servant 
in Jesus' parable of the talents, who fear, whose fear drove him to be idle and unproductive with his master's money. Do you remember? You can also be overjoyed with a particular outcome, so much so that you become overly concerned with every little thing being just right to the point of neglecting what's really important, as in the case of Martha, whose worrying about small matters left her with no time to listen to the Lord she so desperately wanted to impress. Our anticipation for the kingdom must be biblical. That means that we won't be passive while we wait. We're not idle as we anticipate the kingdom, but rather we are very active about it. We're busy living in light of what's coming, and so busy that we have no time at all to be interested in anything that the world system has to offer. How do we look for the coming with great anticipation? Here are a couple of examples. By practicing an aggressive stewardship of our lives. By investing in what is to come, making sure that we build on the foundation of Christ with precious stone and silver and gold. By fulfilling the responsibility of our ambassadorship, Paul tells the Corinthians that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. How are we doing at that office, by the way? By ministering to others with our spiritual gifts, by private acts of piety that culminate in communal worship. The Sabbath, also known as the Lord's Day, whichever you prefer, is that day on which we come together and look the most like the bride of Christ in heaven. We sing with the heavenly throng. I think you get the idea of what it really means to anticipate God's kingdom. The greater and more aggressively we look and search for the kingdom, the greater our rejoicing when it arrives and our experience of it. Is it not true that the harder we work toward a set vacation, the more we appreciate it when it finally comes. That's what I mean. We've earned it. But there is no relaxation in a break that we take when we're not tired. There's no satisfaction in it at all. So if you tell me that you are anticipating heaven, but until it comes you show no interest in seeing God's will in heaven done on earth, I would be skeptical. Don't sit idly by and wait for the kingdom to come. Eagerly anticipate it. Search for it. Reach for it. Pick up the pace in the race of faith. Let people know what your fight of, why your fight of faith is a good one. And delight in God's kingdom now by ordering your life according to its principles, not the principles of this world system. Identifying with Christ, it means basically to separate from the world system, separate unto Christ, for there's no middle ground and nothing to lose, but everything to gain. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us, for this small but, but important and 
packed, filled with truth passage that you have directed our attention to this morning. We pray that as we leave this place, we will leave with a greater anticipation of the kingdom. We'll come to appreciate and know what it really means to seek and look for it, look for its coming, and how that seeking is expressed in our conversation, how it's expressed in our behavior, and in all that we do, how we conduct ourselves, how we spend our time, our resources, and so on. So that when you do come, not only will we not be caught off guard, but we will rejoice to see our our great King. Lord, we pray this for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of the church. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.